Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life with the advisors from Foster and Motley. In this podcast, they share their mission to help individuals, couples, and families achieve the life they envision by providing a comprehensive wealth management experience. Join this seasoned team of experts as they explore actionable steps to improve your financial well-being and answer your most pressing questions. Variety may be the spice of life, but diversification and investing may be a way to smooth out bumps and ease stress. Welcome to Foster and Motley's podcast about wealth and life and a discussion about diversification. Investment manager Tom Guidi and financial planner Joe Patterson are with me, Patrice Sikora, to delve into the whys and the wherefores. But first, gentlemen, tell me a bit about yourselves and why you do what you do. So, Tom, why don't we start with you? So I am an investment manager and co-chief investment officer at Foster & Motley. I've worked at Foster & Motley 15 years, uh, started out as a trader and worked my way into the investment management role. Um, prior to Foster & Motley, I started at Fidelity Investments for five years, and I think I found a home here. All right. And Joe, it's your turn. Tell me about you. Thanks, Patrice. So I learned that I wanted to be a financial planner by learning first that I did not want to be an investment manager like Tom is doing. And as I grew in the financial services industry and learned more about how I can best help clients, I understood that it was on the financial planning side, acting proactively, coming up with decisions, working in tandem with the investment team to really provide the best possible outcome for clients. Uh, and I can trace my roots and my interest in this industry back to a meeting I had with one of our founders, Dave Foster, when I was a senior in high school. Uh, I was connected to Dave uh, through a mutual connection to interview him about setting up a low-cost, diversified investment portfolio. And I learned who better to talk to than one of the pioneers of this industry, Dave Foster. And so Dave was gracious enough to give me his time and share with me his story and his expertise. And that stuck with me. And, and it took me a little while to circle back to financial planning and to circle back to Foster and Motley. But like Tom, I do feel I found a home where I can stay for the rest of my career, hopefully, assuming they'll have me. Oh, <laughs> outstanding. All right, we are talking about diversification. So let's start from the, from the beginning and, and define it. What is it? So diversification is an interesting topic. It's a commonly used term. A lot of investors think they know what it means, and a lot of them do to a certain extent, but it's really deep as well. It's central to a lot of investment theory. So diversification is owning a broad basket of investments to help reduce investment risk. All right, that reduces your risk, but what about the return? So investment return is, uh, should just become more consistent with diversification. Um, it doesn't necessarily reduce the expected return for any given investment. This reduces the risk, okay. If that's the case, then who wouldn't wanna diversify? So some investors can't diversify. There's stocks that are held in a 401k plan for their own company. 
that they're required to hold. Sometimes you have stock options for a company that are required to hold or a closely held business. Uh, all those things really preclude diversification. Also, some investors just feel like, well, they know more than the rest of us. And by knowing more of the rest of us, they can concentrate their investments and uh, maybe one or a handful of stocks uh, that they feel is going to perform best. Now, those reasons work from the presumption that you know more, more than other investors. Now, if you can humbly accept that, I'm not really going to know more than other investors. Um, there's really no reason not to diversify, not to reduce risk. All right. So you accept the fact that yeah, you can't predict the future. You don't know what's coming up. Then give me more reasons why I should diversify. So I think that's a question of what does reduce risk really mean? So there's an expected return for all stocks and, and everybody has in their mind what that expected return might be. It, yeah, historically, it's been about 10. Um, recently, it's been a little bit higher. At some points in history, it's been a little bit lower. Um, so let's just use 10 as an example. So if you're a stock investor and you buy all the stocks out there, you'd expect to get about 10. If you're going to invest in fewer stocks, even if the stock market got 10, you might get two or you might get 18. There's just a wider dispersion of expected returns around the average. But it doesn't mean that you're going to be above or below the average necessarily by picking a smaller set. You're just introducing that dispersion by investing in fewer stocks. Tell me what some of the risks might be that you'd be trying to minimize. Really, it comes down to investment-specific risks. So you know, if you're an investor in Tesla, what are the specific risks to Tesla? Well, you know, maybe there's quality issues with their vehicle that they have to resolve. Are they able to do that successfully? Are they able to meet the, the expectations for deliveries? Um, are there competitors that are going to have an innovative product that takes over market share? All those things are Tesla-specific risks that aren't related at all to the economy. So if you're investing in just one or a handful of stocks, you're just exposing yourself to those company-specific risks as opposed to the general economic risk of the stock market. So you're telling me there is a very broad set of risks out there. Absolutely. And the more stocks that you hold, the less those little individual risks for every company matter. All right. How about non-company risks, though? Something like unpredictable. I mean, COVID, for one. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and COVID really had an effect on a really broad swath of the economy, um, especially immediately, as we didn't know exactly who were gonna be the winners and losers in that environment. Um, so uh, by holding a broad set of investments, yes, you are impacted by COVID. 
if you would have had a very narrow set of investments, you may have been a winner in that scenario, or you could have been a loser. Um, you could have had all your money in cruise lines. Well, that would be a really <laughs> bad decision. Um, you could have had all your money in Zoom stock. Well, yeah, you probably would have done all right. Uh, but what by holding a narrow set of investments, you're just requiring uh, producing a um, very diverse set of outcomes. If you want to narrow the outcome, uh, then you hold a very broad set of investments. Uh, why that's important is because you know, when we're investing, um, avoiding those big downturns can be important avoiding the, the losses that were experienced by, you know, something like the cruise lines during, during the financial crisis, or excuse me, during the, the COVID uh, downturn. So if we have these extraordinary losses, well, yeah, that's, um, that's pretty impactful for meeting your financial goals. Yeah, and, and Tom, you bring up a great point uh, because you mentioned goals in your last point there. And really, the why, from our perspective, and especially from a planning perspective, is because we want to help clients meet their goals. That's why we diversify. And in many cases, in most cases, frankly, a diversified portfolio that has an expected rate of return and an expected volatility, and that is positioned to withstand these unknowns in our world like covid that is more than sufficient for clients to meet their goals of retirement of saving for retirement of saving for education of the many things that we help our clients with so so it it's always we start with the why uh, when we work with clients why are you here well i have a certain set of goals okay well how are we going to meet those goals and a lot of those goals are very subjective in nature and we kind of help them make them more objective. And then that culminates in this portfolio that we construct that our investment team manages because financial assets are a huge key to meeting those goals. And, and I think I've, I've heard it put well in a way that made sense to me is the best way to make a lot of money or lose a lot of money is to own one stock. <laughs> so that and that's entirely true and tom tom illustrated that uh but that risk reward outcome for our clients usually isn't the best the best outcome so can all asset classes be diversified so yes all asset classes can be diversified so there's diversification within an asset class so an asset class would be something like stocks so you could hold one stock, you could hold a handful of stock, or you could hold a, a really broad selection like the stock market. Also, you can hold large companies, small companies, U.S. stocks and international stocks. All these things add to diversification. In addition to that, there's diversification across asset classes. So what do you hold other than stocks? Bonds is the classic example to reduce risk. Uh, but there's other categories like real estate that can help uh, broaden the exposure of the portfolio. 
Is holding something like an index fund that's tied to, say, the S&P 500, is that considered diversification? Yeah, I would say that is considered diversification in that it's diversifying within that asset class, so large U.S. stocks. But there's other things that it, you could hold as well in addition to the S&P 500, which would be uh, maybe a small company exposure or international exposure. All those would be broaden the uh, stock exposure that you have and help reduce risk. Um, bonds would be the next logical addition, which uh, would help control risk. And they tend not to move in lockstep with stocks. Joe, your thoughts? Yeah, I, following up on Tom's comment with respect to the index fund, the one challenge with an index fund is while it is diversified, right? You do own 500 companies or some piece of those 500. By owning the index, you're also buying into the idea that with the case of an S&P index, as the value of certain companies within the index grow relative to others, you're buying into the fact that those companies are worth more as an investment than the other companies. Meaning, as we've seen the growth of businesses like Amazon, let's say, Tesla, Tom, Tom brought that up before as an example. It doesn't mean that as they grow and, and do well and provide these outsized returns that they are a better investment. In many times, they may be a worse investment, depending on what methodology you use to determine that. But what has happened is as this year and the past several years have gone on, now we have an index that is less diversified only because we have a handful of small companies that have grown as a percentage of that index relative to the rest of the index. So again, that's, that's probably better than owning one or two or three stocks, but we don't want people to be fooled by the misconception that that is truly a diversified investment because again, your, your primary metric in an index fund is the size of a company, the market cap, right? That determines the makeup of the index. And if that changes, your diversification or lack thereof changes along with the structure of the market. So I think it's important to keep, keep that in mind when we bring up you know, commonly quoted stock indices such as the S&P 500. If that were to happen, if you have you're holding that and you know things are going to be changing, should you be going in on a regular basis to look at what you hold and your diversification and change it? Yeah, so that's where I as a financial planner say to our clients or prospective clients, hey, let me introduce you to Tom Guidi. And he is going to manage that for you and have the discipline in place to rebalance on a regular basis. And oftentimes that means Tom or our team will sell or reduce a position that has done really well. So it, it initially feels counterintuitive, right? Why, why Tom, are you selling this stock that has done exceedingly well? It has provided an outsized return. It has outperformed the market. And oh, now you're going in and buying something that's, that looks kind of beat up and hasn't done particularly well. Uh, that's the discipline that it's it's hard to it's hard to have that discipline for yourself. You know, 
when you're managing your own investments. Uh, and that's why Tom and the team take on that mantle and, and rebalance regularly, select investments according to an investment discipline, not according to what's going on in the news or what stock has done the best lately, because that, that would lead us to probably invest a lot differently and, and take on more risk and be less diversified. Diversification sounds like it's really a good thing for everyone. Is it more important for retirees, more important for younger people, or does it really not matter? Just across the board, everybody should be pretty well diversified. So you mentioned younger investors versus older investors. So diversification at its heart is a risk reduction uh, tool. And younger investors can afford to take more risk than older investors. Mm -hmm. They have a longer time frame before they need to use the money if they're saving it for retirement. I'm presuming that. But um, being younger means that you can afford to take those risks and achieve higher returns for taking risk. But remember, diversification is only taking away the company-specific risk. It's not taking away the just general stock market risk or investment risk that's out there. So uh, the company-specific risk you know, doesn't really add anything to the expected return for the portfolio. So for a younger person, they can diversify in that they can hold a broad basket of stocks because they have the highest expected return. They probably wouldn't hold as much in bonds and add that element of diversification uh, because they don't want to give up the, the expected um, the return of stocks. Joe? Yeah, I think Tom, Tom hit it on the head. We don't want investors taking outside risk just because they can, right? Uh, we still want to have a disciplined approach about it. So younger investors, to Tom's point, get paid over time by having a discipline of saving, of staying diversified, of owning the right types of investments, not by, again, taking it will call it a bet, right? Because it is a bet. You can make bets that certain industries, certain companies will do well. And again, I really like how Tom phrased it. That all rests on the presumption that you know something that either many people or all other people don't know. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's easy to get caught up in Bitcoin, let's pick as an example. It's a wild ride. If you're on the right side of the ride, it's worked out fantastically well. As long as you remember uh, your passwords. As long as you remember your passwords. <laughs> I did I did read that article in, in the in the Times from a week or two ago and, and it made me feel a little sick to my stomach. That, so we uh, should perhaps just review that. Uh, a guy who invested in Bitcoin had millions in his in his wallet and he forgot the passwords and he's locked out now. He had what, ten tries, I think? And bingo, he's locked out. He had 10 tries, and I think he may have two left. And I believe the number I read as of the writing was $220 million. Oh. 
and two tries to get it right. So again, that's an extreme example, but, but it's valuable, right? Because that, that is an investment that has over the past year done exceptionally well. Uh, don't ask me or Tom why, but it has. So, uh, you know, we, that's, that's, that's gambling, right? Let's just call it what it is. That's gambling. And that, that doesn't, it doesn't line up with how we help clients address long-term savings and, and meeting their financial goals. Do your clients understand risk or do you have to educate your clients about risk? You know, from my perspective on the planning side, it, there is definitely an education piece. If nothing else, because what we've uncovered today is there are multiple different types of risk. Uh, there are multiple degrees of risk. Some some risks are more powerful and impactful than other risks. So yeah, it's an education. It's an opportunity really for us to educate our clients uh, because once you understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, it, it makes sense why we manage portfolios in the way we do. Um, some clients describe themselves as risk averse. Some of those clients happen to be small business owners and often will say to them, you're actually a risk seeker, right? Because you, you took the wherewithal and, to start your own business and your eggs are very much in one basket. So uh, you're saying your risk averse doesn't line up with what you've done with this great, this great business you've started. So, so that, that is an example of it's an education for our clients as we frame how we approach risk and how it impacts their portfolio. And, and really, from a planning perspective, I think about, again, how does it impact their ability to reach their goals, right? You know, we, we, we refer to this financial independence analysis that we, that we craft for clients, and, and, and it's a, one of the tools in our tool belt, and it looks at the long-term sustainability of their investments. And, and a big piece of that is, is volatility. And for clients who, let's say, own a big concentrated position in a company, it doesn't matter if it's a good investment or not, because many times it is a good investment. What, what does matter is that by owning that concentrated position, we have to assess their portfolio differently and, and say, all right, you have assumed greater volatility than a diversified portfolio otherwise would provide. That might mean that your goals that you would have been able to meet could be in question, or it could be that that one single security does so exceedingly well that you're fine and we don't have to worry about it, but we, we'd rather not leave it to that chance. But as Tom pointed out, some, sometimes clients find themselves in positions where they have to hold a security for one reason or another, whether it be for work, for tax constraints. So, so we have to help and do our best to work around that, which, which we do for clients. So I understand for Go ahead, Tom. Oh, so back to your previous question about clients and educating them about risk. I think clients are averse to risks they don't understand. Most averse to risks they don't understand. So people don't like surprises. So 
if you can talk to a client about this is what you hold, this is the expected results, but these are the expected bumps that we're, we're going to uh, come across over your, you know, the rest of your life, the rest of your life as an investor, they feel a lot more comfortable with it because um, if you have a plan in place ahead of time about what to do uh, when something wrong does happen, and we don't always know why, never would have guessed there'd be a pandemic in 2020. As long as you follow the plan, they, they know what to expect and you follow through, they feel a lot more comfortable. Now, you both had mentioned bonds during the conversation. Talk to me more about bonds and diversifying and, and laddering. So laddering is buying a series of bonds with maturities that extend out. So you could buy a bond that matures in 2021 and 22, you know, 23, all the way out to you know, maybe 2035. And then every year you have a new bond maturing. And then you reinvest the proceeds from that maturity into a new bond. So that's a bond ladder. So bonds are interest-bearing investments. Um, and one of the big risks for bonds is that interest rates change. So if that in a ladder, that bond you bought 15 years ago, it was paying 9% and you go to invest in a new bond today and the similar bonds paying three, uh, you've, you've just lost a lot of income from your bond portfolio. Um, so if you extend that out over time, the impact of that is felt over time. So that's what laddering does for you. When we manage bonds, um, we don't ladder a, a portfolio. We're not as concerned about those reinvestment risks. We control it through controlling the, the average length of all the bonds. So if you take you know, bonds laddered from now out to 2035, Say that's you know 15 years. The average length of all those bonds is you know somewhere around seven and a half. You can manage to a very similar, it's called duration of that that set of bonds uh, through buying a broad basket, and you can do that by buying a lot of things that maybe are three-year bonds and a lot of others that are longer. And on average, as long as you have that, that same kind of duration, uh, it has the same risks as a bond ladder, but you can potentially get more interest from that uh, by uh, buying the most attractive issues. The issues that for whatever reason, the, the market pays a little bit extra for three-year paper and you know, 15-year paper or whatever the, the case might be. So you don't have to control your risk by having something mature every year. You can control your risk by keeping an eye on the, the average maturity or the average duration for all those bonds. If I work in the tech industry, I know tech, right? Should I focus on tech? <laughs> That's a tough one to answer because of how well tech has done recently. Um, so, and and I I certainly have a client or two or three that that that's true, and 
a lot of them have done really well. Um, if you would have asked the same question in 1999, uh, when you could have said the same exact thing, and um, they probably did well the last three years. And if I'm answering the question in 1999, I'd, uh, I'd probably be very tempted to say, yes, bet on yourself. You know, you know this, it, tech's going to continue to ride, but we all know how that turned out. Um, so uh, what industry does well is really cyclical. So yeah, you might know tech and you might know, as Joe alluded to earlier, you, you might work from the presumption pretty accurately that you know more than most people, but you don't know where technology overall price matters. So maybe back in 1999, technology was just really expensive. Um, technology stocks are really expensive and they spent the next several years in the doldrums. And Cisco, you know, back in you know, 1999, 2000, was one of the largest companies in the United States. And today it's still, you know, a leader in its industry. But there is a negative price return for Cisco over the last 20 years. And that's just because it was so expensive back in 2000. So price matters. So, uh, yes, you might know more about companies being a, a tech person, about the companies that you interact with on a daily basis. But because price matters so much and because returns can be pretty cyclical and tech as a whole, you know, might not do well in the next few years just because it looks kind of expensive right now. Or it could do great, I don't know. <laughs> then. Uh it, let's take it to a different industry too. If I know an industry, if I work in an industry and I believe I know that industry, should I focus there or should again, I, I look outside? Yeah, I think it's just any industry can be overpriced and the whole industry can do poorly over a period of time. And I remember back prior to the financial crisis and listen to all these calls from all these banks. And we had a really great idea about, you know, where to invest in banks. And you know what, that was all for naught because yeah, maybe you avoided the worst of the banks, but you know, even the best of the banks did really poorly in 2007, 2008. So you could have been very right about your industry in that case. But if you focus just on that industry, you could be really wrong because all banks move the same way. And technology back in the early 2000s, all tech companies move the same direction. I mean, you could, you know, ID a number of times where one industry just gets washed out for one reason or another. So focusing on a specific industry just introduces that risk. Joe, your thoughts? One situation that, that we encounter often with our clients, and it takes different forms, but it's more or less the same story, is, is we have successful clients who work for a company that's publicly traded or not, but often publicly traded. So, so they have, because of their success, been invited to participate in equity compensation or as a part of their regular compensation are given stock options, restricted stock units, similar types of compensation. 
where they are tied to the performance of the company and and over time those stock awards come due the stock options can be exercised and we have the discussion of well what okay now you have this cash what do we do and we really would prefer that those dollars be invested outside of their industry and their business because it's again this diversification topic they have a lot of eggs in one basket uh that's one of the benefits and costs of being a successful executive in a publicly traded company where you've done well a lot of your net worth is tied to the success or lack thereof of the business that you're in and when there's an opportunity to reduce that risk that single really what is a single stock risk we like that because that puts more certainty behind their long-term goals does it mean that we'll take those dollars and tom will invest them and he will generate a better return not necessarily uh, does it mean that we'll take those dollars and diversify them and generate a portfolio that is lower risk absolutely so so many times this question comes up and we say the opposite hey because you know so much about this industry you also happen to be heavily levered to it let's let's diversify let's not let's reduce the eggs in this basket they're still going to be significant even after we exercise this one stock option but we're we're diversifying your risk and and putting money toward this long-term goal of financial security or whatever the specific goal is for that client guys there's obviously so much to consider here but tom and joe i thank you for offering some perspective on diversification and investing and if listeners have questions how can they reach you? Thanks, Patrice. We would encourage anyone who has questions or wants to talk to anyone on the team to check us out on our website, www.fosterandmotley.com. That's fosterandmotley.com. Or reach out to us toll-free at 1-800-532-2962. All right. Tom Guidi and Joe Patterson for Foster and Motley a podcast about wealth and life. Subscribe for alerts to new episodes and, of course, share with friends and colleagues. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to Foster & Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster & Motley. The content, including mention of specific investments or planning techniques, is for informational and for educational purposes only. It is not intended as a recommendation or a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.